Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Marcus Meets, a show available via iTunes podcast for Apple devices or Acast, which works on iPhone and Android. Uh, you can listen anywhere you want by heading to marcusbronzy.com slash meets. That's M-A-R-C-U-S-B-R-O-N-Z-Y dot com slash meets. Please let us know what you think of the show by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps to spread the good word. Thank you in advance for that. Now, this is the Nihal episode. Now, Nihal is one heck of a talented broadcaster. He's worked in television, he's worked in national radio, and I was very excited to have him on the show. Now, just to clarify, when we are speaking about an incident that happened at an event called Jump Off, Nihal was in such a close proximity because he was actually judging at the time. So in case you're wondering, how was he so close? It's because he was an actual judge. So just, you know, just to frame it up, think of him sitting on a chair, judging a competition and then him reacting how he did now the conversation between myself and Nihal started with us discussing something Nihal had tweeted earlier that day that um I'll tell you what I'll let him explain like I said on Twitter I have to go to the vets to get my dog's anal glands drained now three words that you never want to hear in a sentence is <laughs> anal gland drained. Like that can only be a bad thing. There's nothing positive. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing natural. Well, I guess it is natural, but you have to go. We've got a staffy yeah. called Luna. And I don't know, like once a year or so, a couple of years, she's getting older now. She, like, don't ask me to explain what having your anal glands drained is like, because I'm at one end of that. The dog, the backside is at the other end of that, and I'm not trying to look at what that entails. All I know is that the vet puts a rubber glove on, feels around a bit. The dog looks at me like, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> it stops, <laughs> and the dog kind of looks at me like, I will never forgive you for this, and then it's over. I mean, it lasts very quickly. But some people on Twitter were replying to me going, oh, yeah, uh, you know, I've done that myself. It's disgusting. It smells terrible. I was like, why would you... Why would you do that? Like, why would you try and clean your own dog's anal glands? The t- like, I can't, I, like, I've, I, I'm just talking about it and I feel nauseous. The idea of actually doing that, I, clearly I was going to one of those Asians that was never going to go to med school. No, oh God, yeah, no, no, no doctor. I'm no, not that no, guy. No doctor behavior. I'm so not that guy. So how long have you been doing it for? I know this is just... What, training pro- anal? No, but, no, oh, no, no, no. Oh, how long have you been having to do this to, to the dog? Like, how... Um, what cause is this? Do you know what, Marcus? I don't inquire. <laughs> I just know my wife. So you know about it's happening when the dog starts to drag its ass across the floor. Right. 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 So right. it's obviously got a problem. It's It's got itchy ass syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So itchy ass syndrome in medical terms must be draining of the anal glands. Okay. So essentially 
when you see your dog dragging its ass across the floor yeah. uh, with its ears back looking all uncomfortable, that's time you need to call up the vet and say, my dog's doing this, and then they go, oh, okay. But come and get those glands drained, homie. Bro. It's yeah. It's just it's one of those tweets. I was just sitting there looking at my phone going, I don't even... Oh. Anyway. Um, that's what I said. Yes, comma, this is a thing. <laughs> Right, because I knew people like you and many people I know, including the chef Tom Kerridge. He even tweeted me straight afterwards with WTF, like what the? He had never heard of this either. And Tom Kerridge like yeah. chops animals up yeah. for food. Yeah. Every bit of an animal. Yeah, I'm glad that he doesn't know his way around anal glands. Yeah, yeah, what you wouldn't yeah. have wanted is him no. going, "Oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, all the yeah. time, all the time." I made a like, stew once. Yeah, yeah, yeah that wouldn't be good. That. But um, yeah, congrats on the new show, man. Mm. Um, Thanks, Marcus. Five Live. Talk, talk me through the new show, by the way. Like, so, what, so what's the crap of it? Well, it's, <laughs> it's a difficult question because I don't really know yet because yeah. we haven't had the conversations as to structurally how it will sound, what we're going for. Well, we have an idea of what it is not going to be. So it's not going to be what it was in that slot mm-hmm. because I'm co-presenting with someone called Sarah Brett and she has been presenting that for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been doing brilliantly at it, but... The reason you bring someone like me on board is because I bring certain different vibe to it and that vibe has to come through. It has to play to my strength, but I also have to learn five live strengths, which is much bigger audience, much more in depth, much broader in terms of the kind of subjects you'll cover. So when I covered that show, which basically means when the main presenter beforehand went away, I did a week of it. And on the Monday, I interviewed the comedian Paul Whitehouse, which from the the one show, oh, sorry, the Fast Show, and Harry Enfield and Chums, and you know, like a legendary British comedian. On the Monday, did a big long interview with him. By Thursday, I was into in, interviewing the former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis about coming out of the eurozone and how Greece's economy tumbled. Uh, potentially, it was going to tumble the world economy into turmoil, just coming out of recession. And there was the Greeks saying, we're not going to pay back this debt. We're going to allow ourselves to crush out the euro. And then the Troika, as they were called, of lenders to Greece were saying, well, you know, you've got to pay us. uh, Otherwise, you're going to default. And it was all this madness going on. Um, And then he wrote a book about what it was like to be the Greek finance minister because he was the one, he was the rock and roll finance minister. He wore jeans and uh, biker jackets and rode around on motorbikes. And I was like, oh, my God, look at this rock and roll dude. And it was interesting. So you went from Paul Whitehouse to him in one week, and that will give me a sense of how big a show. Like, for instance, I've already been asked if I'd be interested in interviewing Pele, right? But I can't wow. do it, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm filming somewhere, uh, okay. so I can't do it. But, you know, already you get a sense that, wow, you're moving onto a big stage. Asian Network taught me everything about broadcasting. I learned to become the broadcaster I am, not by my 12 years at Radio 1, but actually by my seven years at the Asian Network. It really taught me how to deal with communication, how to really love language yeah, and to bring subjects alive, to be able to relate to that one person who's listening to you. Because in radio, never say plural to your audience. You never say you guys. You never say you girls. It's always one person, mm. one person in their earphones, one person in the kitchen, one person in a car, one person at the bus stop, one person on the back of the bus. It's one person always. And that taught me a lot. You know, and I'm going for 200,000 listeners on the Asian Network to 2 million on this show slot on Five Live. Five Live, yeah. as a total, has 6 million listeners. Massive, yeah. So, you know, 
we're into the big leagues, you know, into the Premier League, right? So yeah, you've definitely been flexing those broadcaster muscles on Asian Network, like your current show. Um, to me, it's definitely something where you get into strong topics and you sort of, you, you jump right in. Yeah, I mean, today we were talking about whether attitudes towards baby girls being born was still similar over here to the attitude that prevails in India. Now, in India, the birth of a baby girl is not treated with the same joy that the birth of a baby boy is. Now, there's many complex reasons for that, but what we wanted to ask was, is it the same over here or has it changed over here? And the reason we're talking about it is because of a hospital in the Indian state of Gujarat. And you'll basically know Gujaratis because anyone called Patel is from Mm. Gujarat, is from Mm. that state in India. And what a hospital there had done was offer free medical advice and free treatment in a country where you have to pay for it if you gave birth to a daughter. So they treated you differently. So they had to incentivize you. They had to encourage you. They had to say to you, look, come in, have that girl. Don't abort it. Don't kill it when it's a fetus. Don't kill it when it's just been born. Now, this happens in India where you get newborn babies buried alive if they are girls Mm. because families can't afford to have girls as that in poor families and then in more middle-class families there's just a discrimination because of the dowry system whereby a girl must pay for the wedding so that means that poor families don't want to have girls because they can't afford it and there was also this idea that girls don't contribute girls can't go out into the fields girls won't financially look after their parents. Girls don't carry on the family name. So it's all kind of loaded against. And we had some shocking stories. You know, we heard today on the show of a man telling us about his daughter. And his daughter got married. It was an arranged marriage. She was British Indian. She married a British Indian man who was a doctor. So a very good match, right? Mm -hmm. Asian family's happy with that. Yep. Marrying a doctor, all good. She gets pregnant with a daughter and her mother-in-law, with the full knowledge and agreement of her husband, kicks her down the stairs to try and force her to have an abortion because they don't want a girl. Now, this mother-in-law ended up getting 18 months in prison for this and good. Yeah. And there still is this prevailing attitude in the Asian community that a boy is superior to a girl, that a boy being born is a reason for celebration and a girl being born is a reason to feel sad. Now, that's, of course, not across the board, but it is still there. Um, I have a daughter, I have a son, um, and I love my daughter. My daughter and my son are completely equal and that's how it should be and we just want more of that to happen. Do you think having a family is... Does that, has that given you a bit of extra oomph when you're, when you're tucking into these sorts of serious things? Yeah, I think, Marcus, that's a very good question um, and a very good observation because once you become a parent, your worldview does change, or at least mine certainly did, because you see your kid's face in the face of all kids. You see how a child has been battered or abused. And you think of your own child, they're happy, secure, loved, spoiled in many ways in comparison. So, yeah, it definitely does. And it, 
certainly having a girl has made me much more of a advocate for what I think should be normal things. Because as a person of colour, I want to be treated equally to a white person. Uh, a woman should be treated equally to a man. Of course, yeah. um, A gay person should be treated equally to a straight person. These things are normal. Like, this is not revolutionary. Like, this is not me trying to put myself on a pedestal and say, look how good I am. I mean, this should just be normal. Like, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. The odd thing is not asking for it. The odd thing is the fact that it doesn't exist now. I mean, I don't understand why a woman would be paid less than a man for doing the same job. Mm. And how can that be a thing? Mm. How can it be a thing that you would discriminate against someone because of it? they're a different gender than you? Yeah. Why would you discriminate against someone because they're gay? Because they prefer people of their own sex or indeed of both sexes. It's of no difference to me. Yeah, and what's interesting is that it's, it feels like it's, I don't, like a lot of people tell me it's getting worse, but I, d- I don't believe that that's the actual issue at the moment. Would you, what would you say to people that say that it's social media coverage is just helping to show more of what is going on? The fact that communication is deeper, stronger, easier than it, than it ever was. Do you think it's a case that that's kind of showing more of what's going on instead of it actually happening more? You know, post-Brexit, there's been the whole conversation about a spike in racism. Yeah. And you can look at that two ways. You can say that there's still the same amount of racists that there were before. They just feel a little bit emboldened and eventually they'll just crawl back under their rocks because they'll realise that the vast majority of British people, those who voted to leave the EU were not racist. You know, it wasn't racist to vote to leave the EU. It's not racist to have issues with immigration. So I'm an optimist. I'm always an optimist because I don't feel that there's any other option. Like, why would I get up in the morning and be a pessimist? I wouldn't get up. Mm. You know, why would you get up and jump out of bed and run downstairs and have an orange juice and go, my gosh, today's going to be shit. You wouldn't do that, would you? No, you know, so no, not at all. I, I wouldn't do that anyway. So I just see, I see optimism as an option. It's, I think, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I choose love because hate is too great a burden to bear. Mm. So actually choosing love and choosing happiness, choosing optimism is actually the easy route. It takes a lot of energy to hate. I once did a fly on the wall piece of the camera for Channel 4 in this documentary and I had to pretend to be a racist cab driver, homophobic, Islamophobic, and it was exhausting. Mm. It was absolutely exhausting. Whereas me, wandering through life thinking everyone likes me and I like everyone who's not an idiot, <laughs> it's actually fairly easy going. I mean, like, yeah. it just takes no effort to do that. Maybe being nice is just lazy. Because maybe I should need to have a grudging respect for these trolls on Twitter that want to hate on black people, hate on Muslim people, hate on Asian people, hate on women, hate on gays. Because this is that must be hard work. Mm. You know, being that much of a bellend is hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually easy to be nice. That's yeah. the easy thing. Yeah. You know, to spend your life subsumed by rage and anger and bile and negativity. I mean, there's a, a kind of grim admiration, I guess, you have for someone who can waste that much time being a complete dickhead. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of effort. It's yeah, a huge yeah. amount of effort. Yeah, but do you think maybe because you discuss such serious issues 
day in, day out. My name's Friday at the moment. Do you want some more water, by the way? Mm. Cool. Uh, since you discuss these things day in, day out, do you feel that that's why you're so, um, you, you have a very calming nature. Even when you answer the phone, when you talk, you, you, you're quite a chill person, but there is a fiery side to Nihau. Like the jump off incident, uh, jump off is a massive event that brings people in from all over the UK and plays host to music, dance off, loads of entertainment. Also a rap battle. Can we talk about the time you were judging one of these rap battles and what happened when one male contestant said something quite shocking to a woman that he was battling? So... Just to rewind a little bit, he, in a battle rap, said, It's like people are now thinking I'm fake. No sexercise, bitch. After this, in the alley, you're going to get raped. And the most interesting thing and the most optimistic thing about that night wasn't me and what I did. It was the crowd's reaction. That crowd who stereotypically... Anyone who doesn't know urban culture would look around and go, oh, my God, that's hood. Yeah. That's, oh, my gosh, this is frightful yeah. black people and darky ethnic people, um, and they're all misogynists and homophobes and da-da-da-da. They all, to, almost to a person, booed this guy. They made it very clear, straight away, off the bat, that this was not cool. This was not acceptable. And, and they made that clear. Now, that, I think, empowered me to a certain extent. And then when he said, Suck my dick, you do better, come on stage. And I was just like, What the fuck, you fuck idiot? Didn't you have a mum? Didn't you have a sister? Why are you so dumb, misogynistic prick? Talking, you think you're sick? You fat fucking idiot, rapping on this trick? Because I thought about my daughter. Like, I thought about my daughter. Firstly, okay. I thought about my daughter. Secondly, I thought about hip hop, which is a genre of music I've loved for 30 years, right? I've been into it for 30 years. And in that time, I've battled MCs, and I know there's places that I wouldn't go. And I don't think, because I need to be real with you, that MC, the female MC, she looked terrible. Like, she had a terrible haircut, she had dressed really badly. There's a number of things you could have dissed her on, and no one would have had any issue with that. You could have said that, you know, she looked like a, a busted tramp and... Do you know what I mean? Like, there's so many things that, do you know what I mean? Like, you come to this, you come to this jam, but you flopped, you look like you bought all your clothes from a charity shop. Like, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. loads of yeah. things you could have done. But you threatened to rape her, sexual violence against a woman? Like, I, I was like, you're, not only are you disrespecting a woman, but there's loads of that, and, and, and hip-hop and battles, you can disrespect who you want. But you are disrespecting hip-hop because a real MC would not go to that wouldn't need to go to that someone who valued the art would not need to have a cheap shot like that and, and a violent one and a, a regressive one mm. and it's quite interesting there's a, a rap collective called Don't Flop yeah and a few of their people started trolling me like hard for like days after that as soon as it went viral they were trolling me like you're a pussy you don't know nothing about hip-hop. And I was like, I remember Charlie Sloth reading these tweets and he tweeted, he goes, say whatever you want. There's no way you can say about Nihar you don't know about hip-hop. This guy's an OG. Like, you can't... Mm. This guy goes way, way back. I was writing for Hip-Hop Connection in the 90s, interviewing Outkast and 
Snoop Dogg and all of these people. I've interviewed Grand Wizard, Theodore, Cool Herc, people that half of these guys haven't even heard of, the building blocks, the original OGs <laughs> of hip hop. So for me, it was like, well, you just think I'm that guy from Radio 1 and you think I'm a new Jack. You think I'm new to this. You think I just jumped up on stage. So it was quite interesting. It, they're predominantly white, these MCs, and they were trolling me. And I remember them saying, anything goes. So to one of the white MCs, I said, okay, would you use the N-word? And he went, no, of course I wouldn't. I goes, well then, clearly you have your limits. Your limits just happen to be different from mine. Mine are, you don't talk about raping. And I remember one of the MCs said to me, as way of kind of him trying to gun me, that, but in my own rap, I, I once put, oh no, check this link out. So I checked the link out. And in this rap, he'd looked at this person and he'd gone, you're so ugly, I'd rather fuck my own three-year-old daughter or something like that, right? And he thought that was a way of gunning me. And I went back to him and I went, how dare you disrespect your own child, your own daughter, to talk about her, who should be the most precious thing in your life. Mm. To be, like, What kind of man are you that would do that? Like, how low are you? So you think in 15 years' time you're going to show her that and she's going to be proud of her dad mm. for saying that? About another MC, oh, you're so ugly, I'd rather fuck my own daughter, three-year-old daughter than fuck you. How is that even, come, like, so your morality is so twisted and you can say, okay, there's no morality. So you won't use the N-word, but you'll talk about having sex with your own three-year-old daughter. Yeah. In, in this, like, your logic is so twisted. And, and I had about four or five days of them gunning me and people saying that it was a setup and... It, it was all kind of pre-staged and da da because it went viral. Yeah. Like it, I think Worldstar. Yeah, it, it was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. it was everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a weird thing because um, that night, my wife always reminds me, it was a Monday night and I just came home and I went, oh, this thing happened. And I, um, this guy said about raping a girl and the first thing I thought of was my own daughter and I just thought it was disgusting. Mm. And I got up and I did it. And she went, oh, okay, that's nice, dear. And, <laughs> and we just kind of went to bed. And then over that next week or two... It, since so you had no idea that that no, was going to be the repercussions? No idea. Like, no idea that that was going to be... And, you know, some people got me and said, you know, it was misogyny in itself because you stepped in when she could have defended herself. You didn't give her a right to come back at him. So therefore... And then in the way I, I was fat shaming the guy. So, well, you know talking about rape and fat shaming, you just uh, replace one bad thing with another bad thing. I was like, well, let's just be really clear. Calling someone who's overweight a fat fuck is not comparable in my book to him threatening to rape a woman. I, I, I you know, that's cool. If you want to set a chart up, if you want to do some market research, go ahead. But in, in my mind and in my life and in my moral, it, it's not the vibe. See, it's interesting that, that whole moment brought all of that out the woodwork as well. All these interesting people, and I say interesting, there's probably a better word I can use for that. <laughs> but all of these types of people that had these, these very out there views. And you see, you know how you just seem to be the person that can do that. I don't know whether it's because of your journalism part. I mean, do you think that that's, that's why you've got this skill where you can draw people out and have conversations with them, whatever their opinion is? Do you know what, Marcus? Um, I, I like people. And I, I like talking to people. You know, on Saturday night, I was at a rave. I sat next to these two girls. And it was 4.30, 5 in the morning in Hackney. 
And um, we were a bit worse for wear, me and my <laughs> mate, because we'd been out on a night, originally 12 of us, and by the end of it, it was two of us in a rave in Hackney. So we liked to hear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm still doing it, yeah. mid-40s, still on it. <laughs> and, um, and these two girls sat next to me, and they were talking, and I went, it's really nice to see, like, like I said, my wife and her best friend, you remind me of my wife and her best friend, like two girls out partying, having fun. She went, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. We started talking. Within five minutes, I knew that she had mostly liked girls, but now she'd met this new guy. She'd been with him for two years. She, um, you know, had to explain because she was of a Caribbean background. You know, uh, she never thought she would settle down with a guy. She'd always liked girls. You know, I just, this, you know, within five minutes, we're having these conversations. This happens yeah. all the time because... One thing, and one day it'll get me in trouble, as you got me in trouble once, um, <laughs> is you kind of forget that in the job I do, I ask questions that most people wouldn't. So that becomes your normality. Definitely. When, when did it get you in trouble? Um, I, I started having this conversation with this guy, this cab driver, old fella. And um, I kept asking him about politics, about, you know, what, you know, what does he think? And da, da, da. He said, oh, what do you do then? And as soon as I said BBC, he went nuts. <laughs> what do you want to know? Why do you want to know for? Who are you talking to? Are you recording this? Like, wow. He just went like super paranoid. Super paranoid. But the thing is in school, I remember, I was kind of renowned as the guy who talked myself into trouble. So if, I remember, I got into a little bit of trouble um, because we got into a little kind of gang thing. And um, and rather than me just kind of diffusing it, I just couldn't help but take the piss out of the bloke, which meant that he had no option but to have to fight me because I just kind of humiliated him so much. I mean, with one of the Towie girls, we were outside a club in Essex and, and I was with a few of my pals and they were a bit lively and they're, you know, they're ex-army and ex all kinds of madness and they're big lads. And I'm obviously not a big lad. I'm not like you, Marcus. And um, and and I remember this girl being really mouthy and she'd had quite a bit of work done, as some of those Essex girls have done. And I just said, I hope you kept the receipt for that nose. <laughs> and, that, and then it all just, yeah, exactly. And it all just went. All, and I couldn't help myself. It was as if I was saying it in slow motion. Yeah. And, and I remember just really just gunning these two girls, um, just taking a mickey out of them. Because it was a bit, it just felt like sport, really. Yeah. And then one of their boys came up and went, you want to shut your, you know, effing mouth, bruv. Yeah. You want to do, do that? And really kind of rearing up against me. And then all I remember is him kind of looking over my both of my shoulders and then walk, stepping away like this. And then I looked round and I, there was literally about four or five of my guys <laughs> and, they're, and they're all units. And, yeah. they're, and then they're just standing there going, is there a problem? And the guy's like, no, mate, it's no, no, it's no, it's yeah. no problem at all. None of that, none of that. But then also at school, um, one thing that i figured out pretty quickly was if someone called you a packy you would have to punch them because that way even if they beat you up and you'd have to hurt them in some way yeah so whether you're going to pull out parts of their hair or you're going to scratch them or you're going to bite them you're just going to go nuts like you're just going to have to go nuts and that meant that it wasn't all mouth like people knew that i would never start something but if someone wanted to start something i i wouldn't shy away from it so I wasn't going to be that Asian that a lot of people thought Asians were. Mm. And I realized that was this way to survive. That and, and networking almost. So who is the hardest guy? Who is the craziest guy, right? Let's go and work out what they're like. 
journalist in you working out early on working it out i don't know how often would you hear people calling you that though at school like how well, often was that an occurrence well you see i'm in my 40s so i was at school in the 80s so it was there was a lot there was mm. a uh, for, for anyone who's in their 20s and 30s there were these things called skinheads and skinheads were essentially it was fashionable to be racist so they had a uniform which was uh, tight jeans dr martin's boots a green bomber jacket, usually a check shirt, maybe a Ben Sherman, and all their hair shaved off. You know, all their hair shaved off. So skinheads, they were called. And they were openly racist. Like, openly. They just walk past you and go, you packy bastard. Like, Crazy. no way. Like, and it was just like, they were kind of empowered. So they, now you see them, they're the kind of people that rip their hijabs off Muslim mm. women and spit on Muslim women and go to EDL marches and Britain First and all BMP and all those idiots. Mm. It's those people. But there were loads of them. There were loads of them. And I went to a state school. I didn't go to a posh school. I went to a state school in Essex and I was one of maybe 10 Asians in a school of a thousand kids. So, you know, you, 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 you firstly you clubbed together with the black kids because the black kids were having none of it. <laughs> like you called them the n-word they were going to bang you out like no doubt about it so it was make an alliance with them hang around with them because that was the backup you needed and if it came on top you were good you know but one thing that i've always always realized marcus is for every white person that called me a packy there was at least 10 white people that would ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. kick the hell out of them for doing it you know right. white british people are good people tolerant people much more tolerant than asians are <laughs> of each other and and i say that from experience mm. you know i grew up around white people i know mm. how tolerant white people are i was welcomed into the homes of my friends you know who were living in council estates and we would go and we would break bread with them white more than asian mm. So I know what, and that's why I judge nobody on their colour. Being brown or black makes me no more likely to think of you as an immediate friend than if you're white or Far Eastern. If only everyone had those values. I wish. I wish, eh? Well, so, um, you know, yeah. it's not difficult. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not for some, but it is for others for yeah. a multitude of reasons. So. Being a young Asian gentleman in Essex, mm. how did you discover your love for hip-hop? Because hip-hop rescued me from racists. Because suddenly, whereas it was 
kind of cool to be hard and white and a skinhead and a bit nasty to people. Suddenly it was cool. Fashion's just changed. It was cool to break dance and, and rap and do graffiti and DJ if you could afford turntables, which you probably couldn't at school. And who were the big people doing that stuff? Brown people. It was black people. It was African-Americans and Hispanics doing that. Suddenly it was ethnic people that were doing something cool. And I was on that wave and I just discovered that I could MC, freestyle MC. It was an art that I kind of discovered, started off by writing rhymes and then actually realising that, well, because of laziness again, it was just easier to freestyle than it was to sit there <laughs> and spend all that time writing rhymes. And that meant that you had a particular skill that crews wanted. So they had their DJ, they had their break dancers, they had a good graffiti, but they didn't have an MC. Oh, that dude, like, he can MC. MC Crazy A, as I was called. Uh, like typical crazy A yeah 80s kind of name what, what, what was the A for Arthur Nyker my surname uh, okay. oh yeah. yeah oh yeah obviously yeah, 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 yeah Arthur Nyker yeah, crazy so A. that was the only thing that you would get you would have all these kinds of names Busy B and all these names with with, with uh, consonants or vowels at the yeah. end yeah I used to love that you, yeah. Yeah, you always needed the vowel or yeah. the consonant at the end yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, that was you done and A was a good yeah. one because everybody would be crazy yeah. it's crazy there and crazy yeah oh, no. yeah it's <laughs> crazy T crazy yeah. B crazy C <laughs> oh it's crazy A um, so I guess in the rapping telephone book I would be first yeah I'll, yeah good good option <laughs> I know <right? laughs> good option um, yeah. and yeah oh, you obviously you, uh, you you were rapping in a crew for a little while as well weren't you yeah um, how did you meet up with Collapse Long? So they reached out to me because we were all from Essex. We were all from Harlow. And they said, oh, you know, you rap. We're doing this guitar rap track. Can you just come and lay the vocals on it? I was like, yeah, cool, cool. cool. Let's do that. I think it was just a one-off because as a rapper, British rapper then, it's not like now. Like you could never be a millionaire doing that 30 years ago. There's like no way. Even 25 years ago. Actually, 15 years ago. I mean, pre- Boy in the Corner, really, Roots Maneuver, pre that, I mean, what did you have? You know, it was, no, Nothing beyond the raves and, and, and pirate radio. Yeah, nothing, exactly. Nothing, yeah, you know, yeah. But to be a tiny, you know, who is a millionaire, it's crazy. Whose house did he buy the other? He's got Alex, Alexander McQueen, that's Alexander right. McQueen's old yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing for... And I feel so immensely proud about that because when I was working in the music industry in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, you would always say British black music, it just can't get arrested. Like you can't sell British black music. No one wants to buy it. They just want to buy If it's black, it's American. Mm. And okay, there was different bits. There's a soul to soul. Jazzy B made a difference. And Loose Ends made a difference. But then there were other amazing, the late, great Lyndon David Hall, you know, who had brilliant for a sexy cinderella tune but no one really cared you know and then a white guy didn't rick astley comes along with pop songs and was like (laughs) white soul brilliant you know so it it was really difficult then you know and i i and i figured that out pretty quickly so you would just go and do bits what anyone asked you to do it you'd go okay i'll just do whatever because something might come of it and something did come of it with collapse lung you know, suddenly they just became indie darlings. You know, the enemy loved us. Joe Wiley played us on Radio 1 when Joe Wiley was like the biggest thing mm. in alternative radio. We played festivals. We toured the country. And Collapse Lung was a thing. You know, comedians like Mark Thomas and Phil Jupiter, Mark Lamar would come and see us play. 
And it was a exciting time. And that was like 93. Mm. So like 23 years ago. This is well before the never mind the buzzcocks iterations yeah, of these yeah, same people. <laughs> them one, or before them ones, you know, it was, yeah. it was just out there, you know. There's a, a video clip on YouTube of me in Collapse Lung performing a track called Chainsaw Wedgie. Right now it's time to receive a Chainsaw Wedgie from Collapse Lung. Yeah. And uh, it's so mad sick because we were like a guitar rap band. So we look kind of a bit punky and a bit alternative. But actually I was a full blown hip hop head. But it was great with Collapse Lung because it opened my mind to Nirvana and Radiohead and started listening in those early 90s, mid 90s to all these guitar bands as well as listening to the hip hop I was listening to. And you think that opening up kind of helped that transition into Radio 1 when that finally came around? Because yeah. it's, it's playlist obviously is... is I'm a, you know, I'm a different kind of Asian, right? <laughs> I'm a different kind of Asian. I'm a left field brother, right? I'm not that guy that was going to Bollywood raves and Bhangra and all that. It's nothing to do with me. I have a, you know, I've, got my tats and I've I've grown up around mostly white and black people that's not to say I'm not Asian of course I am just look at me you know I go to Sri Lanka every year and I'm very much in touch with who I am Sri Lanka but I'm very confident in who I am yeah like I don't feel conflicted I don't say oh god I wish I was this and what was that my parents brought us up to believe in being here so for me it's always been easy to to glide into situations and to talk to different people and appreciate different mindsets. And part of that is, is also kind of having multiple personalities. So, you know, you're one thing in a certain sphere and you're another thing in another sphere and you're another thing in another sphere. And it's taken, that's taken the longest time to kind of really go, okay, I don't have to be what I think other people want me to be. With regards to being a broadcaster, You've, like, you, you know, you, we've already, we've already spoken about your journalism, so you've written about music, you performed music, you're then on Radio 1, so you're meeting, you know, you're one of the largest, largest stations in the world. Um, how was it having a skill set that could work on specialist radio? You've, also, you've mentioned different sides, but also working out and growing as a broadcaster with... I'd say more speech and daytime radios. Well, how was it developing those skills and talents? Or how do you feel now at the other end, knowing that you've got this plethora of skill? Do you know what? I just genuinely, I feel like there's no other broadcaster with the breadth that I have. There's no broadcaster who can direct message a former cabinet minister and a grime MC on Twitter and have very meaningful conversations and deep conversations about both things. So it just meant that, I, you know, I'm not sure I ever really felt, there was only a couple of years when I ever really felt valued at Radio 1. Over that 12 years, there's probably, probably a third of that where I felt kind of valued. Why is that? Because I think, I think that Radio 1 takes a lot of its specialist DJs for granted. That's not important as the showbiz daytime DJs. And when I started doing daytime and specialist, I suddenly noticed the difference. 
okay, it's bigger numbers and it's, but actually, I think if you're clever, you'll understand that it's the specialist DJs that bring the coolness to Radio 1. 100%. You know, it, so for me, every year there'd be a Christmas party and you'd walk in and all of the DJs would be there. And I'd never feel part of that. You know, I never felt part of that. I always felt slightly like there's nice people there, there's big egos over there. Where drunk do I people feel? over there, Christmas party, bear in mind. Very yeah. drunk people over yeah, there. Yeah, very <laughs> drunk people everywhere. In fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I actually felt much more affinity with the producers and the assistant producers and the broadcasting assistants. I had a much better time talking to them than I did to like my other DJs. I mean, who did I really like? I really liked Fern Cotton. I thought she was lovely. Yeah. Reggie was cool. Um, Vernon was cool. Um, and, you know, the, the leg- and I loved talking to Fab and Groove Rider. And John Peel was there when we was there. And that was amazing to be in the same with Giles Peterson. I love wow. Giles Peterson. Yeah. I think of all the DJs at Radio 1, Giles and I had the most vibe about us. And today, like Toddler T, I think is a really lovely guy. I mean, there's... there's Cool guys, it wasn't them that made me feel like I didn't belong in there. It just, maybe it was me. You know, maybe it was just, I just felt like this isn't for me, mm. you know. And what's really nice about moving to Five Live is it's the first time um, where someone mainstream has kind of sh- shown or told you that what you do is worth something. You know, when John the controller in the press release said, you know, alongside Emma Barnett, who's also joining Five Live, the, the Daily Telegraph journalist, two of the most exciting voices in British broadcasting. You know, recently I was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame, you know, at 44. And it was amazing to to be that. It was, you know, me and Frank Skinner was inducted on the same mm. day and Victoria Derbyshire on the same day. So, you know, to be that company in regard, you just go, okay, I'm that guy now, you know, and it, it, I think that there is an element of trying to make you feel insecure about yourself because that's a much easier way to kind of control your ego. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I did ever really feel that valued and uh, you know, it's fine. You said there were times that you did feel valued. Is there a standout time when you... Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, when you're doing daytime and you're speaking to, especially when you went from weekend breakfast to weekend afternoons. So when you're in weekend afternoons on a Saturday and a Sunday, you're in the yeah. heart of it. You're sandwiched between Vernon Kay and Fern and Reggie. And they're big names, right? And you're there on that daytime. But ultimately, there's no fulfillment in that broadcasting for me. When I look back on that, I don't think I really got anything out of it. It was only really when I started doing the phone-in show on the BBC Asia Network that I really started to feel that I was home. And I made that decision that I wanted to do speech broadcasting because I didn't want to be a DJ in the clubs in my 40s. I just didn't want that. I didn't want to be getting in at five o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to be getting in with a tour manager and travelling up to different parts of the country on a Wednesday, Thursday night to play in a, in a club whereby I didn't really like it. I didn't really enjoy it. I'm privileged and it is 
a blessing to be able to do something I love. Mm. And on Five Live, I know I'm going to be able to do something I love. On Asian Network, I've done something I love. Doing my specialist show on Radio 1, I loved it. I loved it. But ultimately, the problem was there was no Asian scene. There wasn't. So those two hours really were just almost like a tick box exercise. Here's two hours for Asian people to do Bhangra and to do... So we as the Beeb, we've done our... Do you know what? And, that, that, and, not, and that's not their fault. Mm. There were plenty of Asians that did it, but the Asian, a lot of the Asian artists themselves were just happy to have that one play on, on two hours on Radio 1 and, and bank their Paris check. But that's not what music is about. Music about, if you look at Stormzy's hustle, Stormzy doesn't need the radio to be who he is. Skeppy doesn't need the radio. It's brilliant that it's there and it's brilliant that amazing DJs like Mr. Jam are there mm. to champion what they do. But look at them. They're self-generating empires. And I also saw that. I saw that actually, if you do speech radio, you can't Spotify a good conversation, right? You need people there to be able to get that. And also as well with Radio 1, the older you are, the less respect you have or the more pressure you feel because people start to question your relevance. Hmm. But in speech broadcasting, news, politics, the older you get, the better you are at it because of the amount of experience you have, because of the kind of conversations you can have, because of the, the knowledge you have accrued. I actually feel that my brain is more vibrant now than it has ever been in its ability to be able to pick out facts and read things and see and analyze. It's amazing. Mm. My brain feels more alive than it ever did in the first years of my broadcasting. Great. And, and, you know, Manchester, we'll talk about Manchester in a sec, because that's a great part of the UK to move to. But Mm. another thing about you and, and this is interesting and and you're quite, you're quite an honest person. You're very open. And the Mm. fact that when you were still, in the Radio 1 building to make the comments that you did about there not being enough diversity. Correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, Niha, if I say anything out of way, but you weren't happy with the lack of diversity within the production team. So I just want to quickly say, unsung heroes, like the amount of work that the producers do to to get the content out, they're obviously not taking away anything from the presenters, but so much work comes in for production. But the fact that you could say that why you were still in the building. For me, that was another jump off. Whoa, I can't believe it. Oh, wow, can't believe he's just said that, you know. And, you know, there were people that were talking to me saying at the time, oh my gosh, don't bite the hand that feeds you and stuff. And I was like, I saw it as more than that. I saw it as, 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 as very ballsy. And, and, and how did you gather the balls to just to say Do that? You know what? For the people who said, don't bite the hands that feed you, I'm not Oliver Twist. <laughs> like I'm not going with a begging bowl yeah. and if those people are saying yes massa no massa like they need to fix up exactly right because we have a right as people of colour to be treated equally and if we're not being treated equally we have to say that now I'm lucky I'm not in my 20s I'm secure in who I am and I knew that no one could fire me for that because it would be even worse for them if they did that and to me, what, I, what wound me up was how comfortable everyone felt about what a great job they were doing on the eighth floor about diversity. It's like, oh, look, look, walk around the eighth floor at the BBC. There's black folks over there. There's mixed race blokes over there and girls. There's Asian people over there and there's white people. 
look at us. We are the world. We are like, whoa, let's just, let's just check this out for a minute. All the black folks are there. One extra. All the Asian folks are there. Asian network. Mostly the white folks are Radio 1. That's not diversity. That is silos. And that's the word I use. And that's the word that wound them up the most. I said, this is silos. This is all the Asian people over there, all the white people. And I had these conversations where black people and Asian people felt as though they couldn't move. They weren't being given the chance to try new things. Now, at that point as well, when I made those comments, between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., every day on Radio 1, there was not a single person of color working in production or on air. This is just before Clara Ampho was announced. Yeah. Now, for a national radio station in a country where 15% of the population is ethnic minorities, I'm sorry, you cannot say you represent modern Britain and you're the entry point for people coming in to the BBC and, and you, you, it's all white people mm. in front of the mic and behind the mic. This is not dissing white people. This is just saying you need to fix up. Because you are not representing. What about the black and Asian people that pay the license fee? What about them? What, they don't get a shout? Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. They've got one extra and they've got. But what if you're black and you don't listen to grime? You just want to listen to Radio 1. That's one heck of a presumption, isn't it? Oh, you're black. You must. You you like hip hop, don't you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, right. But it's true. And, you know, it was a calculated move by me because. I wanted to rattle them out of it. And you know, rather than, and this is the point, and I think we all can learn from this. When someone says something that is blatantly a truth, just accept it and go, okay, how do we make this better? Yeah. Right? Either that or you build a wall of pride around you, which is driven from your own ego and nothing changes. Now, there are some very good people at the BBC who are driving diversity and want it to happen. And the biggest champion of diversity that I've met at the BBC is Lord Hall. I I knew Lord Hall, Tony Hall, before he became Director General of the BBC. And we'd hung out. This is the guy who got the Sun newspaper involved in the Royal Opera House to do a discount on the front of the Sun because he wanted people of different backgrounds to come to the Royal Opera House. This is a man who believes in diversity. He believes that there should be a wide talent base, you know? Yeah. But there are others in that building who don't. And there are others in that building, usually old people, who believe that diversity is like doing us ethnics a favour. Oh, we'll be nice to those lovely ethnic chaps. What they don't understand is, is that all the new modern Beats One, Spotify, they're not thinking like that. They're thinking, who's the best person? They're not thinking, how do I get people that look and sound like me? They're thinking, how do I, actually the best people I've come across in business? And, and I know good, I know CEOs of major companies. Mm. Without fail, most of them have said to me, I want to look around the room and see people who are nothing like me. One of the problems you get at the BBC is you look around too many of those rooms and they're all the same type of person, really. And that's actually more to do with class than it is to do with colour. Mm. How often do you hear a working class accent? You know, it's all very, very 
middle class. Was there a conversation that was had with you and and management after you made number those of comments? conversations, a number of conversations, yeah, a number of conversations about perhaps this could have been done differently. Why didn't we do it, talk about it internally? Um, and you know, of course, there are going to be a number of conversations because it got a lot of you know. It, once it goes in the media guardian. Everyone picks up on it. You know, Radio 1 DJ slams because they want to give the BBC a kick in. Right. And it was, I I was on the diversity and I still am on the diversity strategy board of the BBC. So me, Floella Benjamin, Lenny Henry, Dame Tanny Gray Thompson, you know, it's a powerful group of people. George, the poets on there and Jason Roberts, the footballer. And it's a really powerful group of people that really do push the BBC as to what they're doing in terms of their targets, etc. It's a big organisation, but Lord Hall is taking it, definitely taking it the right way. And he gets it and he, he's passionate about it. Great. How do you feel about diversity now on, on Radio 101 Extra, do you think? Oh, and Asian Network? Um, I think that, I would like to see more people of colour making the decisions. You know, I remember someone once boasting to me how they had, you know, black women on one extra. I was like, I don't boast about that. You know, that, that's, that's like a fisherman boasting about catching fish. That's the job to do that. You know, Clara Ampho is something worth boasting about. To give Fern Cotton's old gig... And to give that to Clara Ampho is an amazing statement. And I think that is powerful. But you also need to look up the food chain, you know. The guy who was running the playlist at One Extra has now left to join Spotify. Spotify, yeah. Yeah. Um, Austin. Austin, Austin, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's one of the few black faces, you know, in positions of power like that. I suppose that proves your point, right? That these companies will come along and, and just, you know, Dude, they're, they're great. Right. They're we'll not, have you. They're great. We'll have you. They're not. And, and, and you deliver. And we're good. You know, if you have got what we want, you're good. You know, my friend who's Asian owns a very, very successful PR company, super successful. And he's amazing. He's amazing. The contact people that he surrounds himself, the people he employs. He's not interested in colour. He's not interested in what school they went to. He's just interested in what is their vibe, what is their buzz. Mm. People just want good now. I, I like that. I like, I like moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, well, that, that, benef- that, that benefits us. Yeah. You know? It benefits you, you more than me because I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm enjoying the turn of the times. I mean... This virile situation is happening. It's, it's July 2016 right now. And the Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Black Lives Matter yeah. movement. And it's, um, it's something that it needs to be addressed first. It's, 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 pl- it's playing on my mind a lot. It's not something I like to discuss a lot because at the moment I'm just, I'm disappointed. I open my, di- my timeline. I'm disappointed at what I see. And, and um, I hear about, I hear stories, you know, that you've just told me about when you were younger. And I'm like, things should not be like this now. But you know what, Marcus? You know, don't don't be a, a pint's half empty kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because actually, do not let the fact that the idiots shout loudest make you think that there are more of them than us. There mm. aren't. Mm. There aren't. 
for every white person who thinks you are a, a black bastard, there is at least a hundred white people who go, that's my guy. Yeah. Right? So you can't let that one person yeah. dictate you. There will always be idiots in the world. Yeah. Listen, you go to the Caribbean and there are um, people from Barbados who look down on Jamaicans. There are Ghanaians and Nigerians who don't get on. Oh, believe I know about that. There, right? <laughs> there are Indians and Pakistanis who don't yeah, get on. Yeah. There are idiots in every yeah. race. We, trust me, when we, the reason that things annoy us so much now is because we're beyond the stage of us surviving. When our parents came here, they had to put up with that stuff yeah. because they were just trying to survive. We're not trying to survive. We're good in that respect. We have a Race Relations Act. We have hate crime legislation. Our parents didn't have any of that. So we can go to the police and go, now, you may not like that, the police, etc., etc. But there is legislation in place. We have opportunities the like of which our parents never had. Mm. Look at you. You're sitting in your own office. You're your own business. You know, our parents dreamt of that. And now in one generation, imagine what our kids will do. We're turbocharging ambition to our kids. So while, of course, police brutality in America, mm. in America, of course, there was the Mark Duggan case here. But by and large, we live in times where there are opportunities afforded to us. That's not to say there isn't still institutional racism. Of course there is. There are more young black men incarcerated proportionately than there are young white men. But actually, the most educationally disadvantaged person in the UK is a young, white, working class male. The statistics will show that. It's not us. We have that immigrant drive. Look what a difference we see. You know, the first one of The Apprentice was a black man. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's mm. insane. Nadia Hussein wins Great British Bake Off wearing a hijab. Now, if that doesn't tell you what an amazing country this is, nothing. Well, there are more reasons to be cheerful. We just can't find them. That's not to say that we shouldn't be angry about police brutality against African Americans. Of course we should. Yeah. But you don't have to. You don't have to say save the whale and fuck the panda. You know what I mean? Of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you can be angry about these things, but equally you also have to find the sources of optimism. You know, it's my going back to my thing about getting up in the morning. Why would I get up in the morning mm. if I thought everyone's out to kill me and hate me? <laughs> yeah. You know, the day after Brexit, people were talking like the sky had fallen in. Yeah. Since Brexit happened a month ago, no one has racially abused me. And I've been to Manchester... And I've been at a pub, a working class pub, with my wife and children, and gone up to the bar, chatted to a geezer at the bar, chatted to a couple of people there, like proper, like, hood-looking <laughs> guys. You know, T-full busted, wearing an England football shirt, tracky bottoms, proper conversation, in with his pint, moving orange juice. Mm. The world keeps turning. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that that racism hasn't spiked. It has. Clearly, the Metropolitan Police are saying that it has. But we just have to join and unite against those people, not assume that those people are winning because they ain't winning. Mm. 
they ain't definitely and and manchester is a place i suppose you're gonna have to get used to frequenting <laughs> moving, moving my new up home there. as of yeah. next weekend how's how's the move going like how's the preparation going for for being up there How, how's it feel do you know what it hasn't really sunk in you know today the guy who's been doing our dry cleaning for 13 years came around to, for the last time to drop off some dry cleaning and you know on friday i went out with a few of my boys and I work a lot, so I don't get to see a lot of my boys. But, you know, the, the streets I walk down, the tube train I get on, the shop I'll go in, the manner that I know is not going to be my manner anymore. And at 45, I've got to make a new manner. And that's intimidating. Can't lie, that is intimidating. How, how's, how's your daughter must be, like, excited about it, though? My son and my daughter, both daughter, of them, yeah. yeah, both of them are... They're excited about it, but they're also sad as well. You know, they're saying yeah. goodbye to their friends and they're going to a new place. And, you know, you have to keep telling yourself you're going there for such a great reason. You're going there for the career opportunity of a lifetime. You're going to a fantastic city full of friendly people, full of art and culture and history and music and fashion and all the kind of things that you love about London, but smaller, mm. you know. Definitely. Are you still going to be coming back to do your Asian Network show no, on the Friday? You're going to do it from there. Do it from there, Thanks. and that's important to do yeah. it from there. So now you said you're a busy guy. Uh, we have a brother podcast that we call How to Kill an Hour, which is yeah. all about killing time. Yeah. When you do get a little bit of time off, how do you kill a bit of time? Do you want, I lie on the sofa and channel surf and just switch off to usually rubbish films like. I'm a guy's guy, like I want to see Bourne, I want to see, like my wife's like, why do you want to see so much killing? It's like, it action. It's weird because I guess part of me has always wanted to be that guy's guy, but never really got around to it because a bit lazy. <laughs> like part of me want to be that UFC fighter. Part of me wants to be that guy that will kind of walk up to someone who's being bad in a pub and, and say, don't talk to that person like that and take him outside and headbutt them. Part of me has wanted to be that guy. So be the action guy, but I'm not really that guy and I can't really be that guy. So I guess maybe that's why I watch those kinds of films. But I also, you know, I love, um, I love doing nothing because my life is so full of noise, so full of facts and opinions and ideas and culture and that I love nothing better than to talk to nobody and be in the house when everyone's out and it's super quiet mm. and just go on to movie channel and, go okay I'm going to watch Anchorman or I'm going to watch The Bourne Supremacy for like the hundredth time you know it doesn't stop getting good The Bourne films The Bourne films don't, never they don't, they don't stop being great this is one thing my wife great. can't understand yeah. she's like how many times do you watch those films it goes not enough he's possibly my favourite action hero oh Jason, Jason Bourne Jason Bourne I'm with you I'm with you I'm with you just what a great man what's the what, out of the first film what's the best line he goes I can, I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. And I don't know why. Yeah, I'm just yeah, great. I'm like, I, I wish I could wake up like that. To be um, fair, I went through some pretty madness to get to that stage. And that's, yeah, that's, yeah, why, I, yeah. that's why I, I want to watch those films because I know I couldn't go through that yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my best friends was in the parachute regiment and was the youngest physical training instructor at the army when he was mm -hmm. 19. Yeah. And he's that guy. Like he's that now he's a deep sea diver in oil rigs. 
But um, he's that guy. Does it change someone when they have that sort of level of training and, and awareness of their physical oh, capacity? What can what you not do? To do? Someone? What can you not do? What, what can, you know, I'll get up and do, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah. He gets up and does a hundred things. It, it makes no sense. How can someone like that ever not be successful? Crazy. Because they're just the yeah. focus, the d- discipline, and yeah. also unfazed. Mm. You know, he's never going to get into a road rage accident incident because some guy will be going, blah, 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 and he'll go, I once, as a sniper, killed a drug dealer in Belize from like a thousand yards, took him out. So you barking like a puppy at me makes no difference to me. Wow, his frame of mind must be very interesting. Is it really interesting? Really enough, on Friday night, we were having this conversation about killing people, mm. you know, and it was really fascinating because I introduced him to a mate of mine who's an extraordinary guy called Trevor Robinson. And I name him for a reason because he's the only black person to own his own advertising agency. So for those of you a certain age will remember you've been tangoed. Yeah. It was one of the biggest advertising things, you've been tangoed, and he came up with that. That was our black guy who came up with that, you know, and now he owns his own advertising agency and he's super successful and he's brilliant. And he's one of my closest friends and he won an OBE actually, Trevor Robinson OBE. And um, he, um, you know, sat there with my mate who was in it, Harvey, and was fascinated by him. He said, I've never really met, even though my pal grew up on a housing estate in South London and has been through all the hood madness you can imagine. Yeah, you know, and he's a member of Groucho, and you know, he's he's just that guy, you know, super cool guy. And he sat with my parents, and they they there's such a fascinating conversation. It's really interesting when you meet men who go to those extremes, who have done those things. You know, he was in Iraq in the first Gulf War in the nineties. You know, and saw oh god, a street like like Oxford Street full of dead bodies of dead Iraqi soldiers. You know, and those things are deep, you know. Yeah. It's interesting, Lam. Like, well, there's actually another another episode where I actually do get to have a conversation with somebody who's had a similar line of work um, and he has to remain unnamed because he's not, like, he's not able to basically reveal anything about himself. And it's, you're right, when you meet people like that, there are questions and or there are stories that they'll tell you and... You know, it makes you think, wow, I think I've seen, I think I've seen stuff. Yeah. It's very interesting. But um, now I've taken so much of your time. You're going to be in Manchester. Yes. <laughs> by the time this comes out in a few days. Amazing. Um, so thank you for having a chat with me. And um, if I'm in the Northwest, I'll give you a shout. Oh, um, Marcus, 100%. And you probably will be, right? I mean. Yeah, I'm doing Children's BBC stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so. yeah, I'll be up there. It's a great building, isn't it, as well? It is. It is amazing building and yeah. amazing people. And I'm. You know, thanks for asking me, Marcus. That's a nice conversation. No, You've no really problem, no done problem. your research, which is good. Yeah, I did. Sign a of a good journalist. Did a little bit of reading, mate. Yeah, um, right. oh, oh, one more thing there. Yes. Now, so actually, yeah, I've got to ask you this, actually. So you've done everything from journalism, mm-hmm. specialist radio, yeah. speech radio now. Yeah. Like you've, mate, you, you, you've done a lot of broadcasting. A little piece of advice for a young journalist or broadcaster that wants to be successful? Um. Be really interested in the world around you. Assume that, actually don't assume, know that you don't know it all. And 
you know, I think the best advice is, is just be positive with everyone around you because people like to have positive people around them. You know, even to this day, if I can, I'll meet up with someone who's come out of university or I'll email them or I'll direct message them my email address if they want to ask some questions. It takes a while for me to get back to them, but I do it. Mm. And, and just always remember that. You know, Trevor Nelson gave me a great bit of advice. Don't look for massive peaks because there will be massive troughs. It's about a steady climb because you're in this game for the long run. And see ahead. Look ahead. When I was a PR guy, I looked ahead and said, in 10 years, I don't want to be doing this. So when the first opportunity came for me to really get out of it, I got out of it. When I didn't want to be a music DJ anymore, I looked for the opportunity and I got out of it. And it's worked out. And, and, and when I look back on those things, it's about constantly evolving, constantly making sure that people don't box you in. Yes. And I think, you know, you'll be good. The thing about you, Marcus, is that you're tall, you're commanding, you're clever. So now what you need to do is understand that your differences are your positives. People want me on Five Live because I bring a different swagger that comes from 12 years on Radio 1 and then doing the Asian network and having that way. So every single day, every single person you meet who tells you an anecdote and a story is something you lock away for future relevance. And um, always do the meeting. Okay. Now, no matter how irrelevant right. it may seem, always do the meeting. That makes sense. You know, that makes sense. That's one that thing sense. that yeah. my mentor told me. Always do the meeting. All right. Thank you very much. Right. I, I must let you go now because um, so it's thank you very hot much. in here. It's, it's roasting. Uh -huh. Cheers. All right. Yeah, it was definitely getting hot in there. God, how wise were those words at the end? Definitely taking those on board and we'll be using those in the future. Always take the meeting. Um, this, especially if it's a meeting and I want you to be a guest on the show. Now, this show is produced and hosted by a lovely guy called Marcus Bronzy. Thank you to the co-producers, Billy Wright, Shane Powell and David Shawcross. Special thanks to Milo Fisher in research, Carl James, Wide Awake, a.k.a. CJ Beats and Jordan Crisp for the stings and intro music. You can listen to Marcus Meets via iTunes for Apple devices or Acast, which works with every single phone I know of. If you're unsure of what will work with your device, then head to marcusbronzy.com slash meets to listen in any way that you desire. Now, Marcus Meets is made just for you, so we would love to hear what you think of it as well. Uh, if, as well as pushing the subscribe button, we would love your feedback in the form of a review, which you can do by going to marcusbronzy.com slash review. That's m-a-r-c-u-s-b-r-o-n-z-y dot com slash review it helps us to get to more ears and if you want to show us even more love you can become a patron of marcus meets and get access to a whole heap of bonus content early uh, by going to marcusbronzy.com slash thanks that's marcusbronzy.com slash thanks i'll be back with another episode real soon cheers <laughs>